Since the dawn of the human race, Homo sapiens have been fascinated by the wider universe we're a part of beyond our earthly home. Human beings developed the science of astronomy before the science of biology, which indicates that despite the remoteness of the subject, the study of celestial objects was more compelling and more easily observed than the study of our own complex anatomy and physiology. When the earliest humans looked up at the skies, their initial observations weren't necessarily from a scientific viewpoint, though that would eventually emerge. What the earliest humans noticed, though, was that the sky and all that is in it was attuned to our deep-seated sense of transcendent remoteness, which is, of course, something that contemporary humans feel too when gazing at the stars, whether with our naked eye or with the aid of a telescope. Early humans took notice of how the bright, fiery, life-giving sun is located on the distant horizon, and the shooting stars and comets bring the sky down to our Earth. They noticed how thunderbolts in the sky dazzle but also destroy. The sky became personalized in the form of sky gods, known by many names, such as Hathor in ancient Egypt, Thor in ancient Scandinavia, Zeus in ancient Greece, Jupiter in ancient Rome, and Indra in contemporary and ancient India. Even Yahweh, the God of Israel, was originally considered a kind of sky god, who only later in history, after the Babylonian captivity, emerged as the most high among the pantheon of gods in heaven. This sense of the ancient experience with the sky and the divination of it was commented on by the 20th century professor and historian of religion, Mircea Eliade, who said, quote, it is a total awareness on man's part. Beholding the sky, he simultaneously discovers the divine incommensurability and his own situation in the cosmos. For the sky, by its own mode of being, reveals transcendence, force, eternity. It exists absolutely because it is high, infinite, eternal, powerful." End quote. All of which is to say the sky's transcendence mirrors the quest for transcendence within the human soul. This sense of transcendence is what the psalmist, whose words we heard this morning, was trying to convey, for when he looked up at the sky and observed the celestial bodies in their orbit, none of which he made and none of which he had any control over, it reminded him of humanity's smallness in the grand scheme of things. And that contrast between finitude and eternity is sure to induce a sense of the sublime. These days, modern humans, while still fascinated by the sky above us, are no longer likely to mythologize the skies since the natural sciences have given us reliable explanations for natural phenomena like thunderstorms, droughts, blizzards, and shooting stars. Even if we no longer see the face of Zeus and the other sky gods in the demythicized sky, there are still aspects of what's above us which can't be easily revealed by the daily weather report or our smartphones and smartwatches. 
Beyond what's visible to our eyes and beyond the altitude of the planes we ride in is outer space, the next frontier of awe and wonder. Outer space is hidden, abstract, dark, and unfathomable. While astronauts haven't discovered any gods there, our spiritual sensibilities still struggle to acclimate themselves to each new scientific discovery we learn of regarding that dimension that's just beyond the bright blue skies. Part of the fascination about the realms beyond the skies has to do with the question of whether there might be life or intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. While this question isn't new, it does take on new significance in our era when seemingly every other question about the universe has already been explored or answered. Going back to the fourth century before the Common Era, the Hellenic philosopher Democritus came to the conclusion that since there exists an infinite number of atoms, there must also exist an infinite number of worlds. He taught his students that, quote, it seems absurd that in a large field only one stalk should grow, and that in an infinite space only one world exists, end quote. Thinking in an even broader way, the ancient Greek philosopher Anaxagoras, whose thoughts we heard in the opening words this morning, thought that life in some form must exist throughout the universe and not just in one place. Since life exists throughout the universe, it's quite possible then that life could have emerged on planet Earth due to seeds from elsewhere in the universe landing here and developing into the life forms we now know. This theory was called panspermia, and those who agree with it argue that space dust, meteors, asteroids, comets, and other objects from outer space could carry cells or carbon-based life forms like cells from one part of the universe to another. And even contemporary spacecraft could serve as the unintentional conduits of organisms from one part of the solar system to another. While panspermia is considered a fringe theory by scientists today, it has had some support throughout the ages, including by a few 20th century scientists. And it does at least sound like a plausible theory, even if there's little scientific evidence for it at this time. Moving ahead to the Middle Ages, while we imagine there wouldn't have been much thought to this topic in the so-called Dark Ages, the 15th century German philosopher, cardinal, mathematician, and astronomer Nicholas of Cusa wrote some interesting ideas about this topic, and his writings were both impressive and highly influential on later thinkers. For example, he wrote that, quote, life as it exists on earth in the form of men, animals, and plants is to be found, let us suppose, in a high form in the solar and stellar regions. Rather than think that so many stars and parts of the heavens are uninhabited and that this earth of ours alone is peopled and that with beings perhaps of an inferior type, we will suppose that in every region there are inhabitants, differing in nature by rank and all owing their origin to God, who is the center and circumference of all stellar regions. Of the inhabitants then of worlds other than our own, we can know still less having no standards by which to appraise them. 
it may be conjectured that in the area of the sun there exist solar beings, bright and enlightened denizens, and by nature more spiritual than such as may inhabit the moon, whilst those on earth are more gross and material." End quote. While it's hard to imagine there being any living solar creatures, given the extremely hot conditions on the sun and the planets closest to it, Nicholas of Cusa's original thinking on this matter describe a kind of flexible thinking in that he imagines that any extraterrestrials which would exist would not resemble us as much as they would resemble the habitat that they originate from. Nicholas of Cusa wouldn't be the only or last Christian thinker to contemplate the possibility of other life forms in other regions of the universe. Fans of the novels and books of the prolific 20th century author and theologian C.S. Lewis might be surprised to know that he was open to the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And he wrote, quote, how can we, without absurd arrogance, believe ourselves to have been uniquely favored? End quote. He went on to write that if humans did indeed find alien animal life, we would need to determine if these alien beings are rational, if they have any kind of spiritual sense, and if they are fallen creatures with original sin, as he believed that humans are. If all three of these categories were evident in these extraterrestrial life forms, and if humans learned that no form of redemption had reached these life forms, then the human task would be to evangelize them. Since in his view, quote, redemption, starting with us, is to work from us and through us to the extraterrestrial beings. Those who are or can become God's sons are our real brothers, even if they have shells or tusks. It is spiritual, not biological kinship that counts, end quote. Of course, whether or not any extraterrestrial life forms would be open to being evangelized is another story. And Lewis didn't consider the possibility that they may have a belief system they would want to share with us. Having said that, the question of whether there is life in the universe outside of our planet isn't just something that pious theologians and curious philosophers have thought about. Contemporary scientists and theologians are curious about the existence and ramifications of finding extraterrestrial life too. While no forms of life of any kind, whether single cell organisms or intelligent beings have ever been confirmed to exist outside of the earth, scientists continue to search for it. And there's even a specific field of science dedicated to this pursuit called astrobiology which is the branch of biology concerned with the study of life, both on Earth and in space. In 1976, NASA sent the Viking space probes to Mars to look for signs of life there. And just last week, a NASA panel investigating unidentified anomalous phenomenon held a press conference to share their findings which essentially revealed that 98% of reported mysterious sightings in the skies have a natural explanation, and all but one sighting reported by military pilots have a scientific explanation. Nevertheless, since the Viking space probes, 
astrobiologists continue the search for any type of biosignatures that might exist. These biosignatures are any characteristic, element, molecule, substance, or feature that can be used as evidence for past or present life. While nothing definitive has turned up yet, one has to be prepared for the possibility that one day something could be found, whether a billion-year-old fossil of some cells or signs of a contemporary alien civilization light years away. If something of that sort were to be discovered, how would we humans respond to that information? And how would that information change our perception of ourselves and the world we live in? What many don't know is that NASA is already thinking ahead about this. It was revealed to the media at the end of 2021 that NASA funded research in 2016 and 2017 to see serious scholarship being published in books and journals addressing the profound wonder and mystery and implication of finding microbial life on another planet. For that reason, two dozen theologians were recruited for a study called Societal Implications of Astrobiology at the Center for Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey. While little of this NASA-funded research has been published so far, one of the researchers, the Reverend Dr. Andrew Davison, who is both an Anglican priest and scientist and who serves on the faculty of the University of Cambridge, has shared publicly that, quote, in thinking theologically about life elsewhere in the universe, there has been a tendency to pick up mainly on passages from previous theological work where other life has been the topic under discussion. I want to move beyond that and join the discussion to a much wider range of material and perspectives. Perhaps the main discovery I would report on to date is finding just how frequently theology and astrobiology has been a topic in popular writing for at least a century and a half, in monthly magazines, for instance. Detection of alien life might come in a decade or only in future centuries, or perhaps never at all. But if or where it does, it will be useful to have thought about the implications in advance." End quote. Dr. Davison's research was just published last week in a book titled Astrobiology and Christian Doctrine, Exploring the Implications of Life in the Universe, published by Cambridge University Press. You can check it out online. While the presence of life in the universe remains an open question, it seems to me that for now, the best assumption to make is that we humans are in fact alone in the universe. And if there is any life in the universe, it probably doesn't resemble us in any way. Humans yearn for mirror images of ourselves, which is why we anthropomorphize everything from our pets to our deities to artificial intelligence. If simple life forms like cells or plants were to be found in other sections of the universe, perhaps the panspermia theory would gain acceptance. And if intelligent life forms were to be revealed to us, I imagine it would cause the same reaction as the coronavirus pandemic. Some would be in denial, some would panic, some would feel paranoid, and some would accept it impartially. 
As Unitarian Universalists, I can imagine that members of our faith would respond with an attitude of both reverence and curiosity. Reverence for the beauty and mystery of our universe, which constantly reveals itself to us. And curiosity, in order to know something more than we knew before. And this attitude of reverence and curiosity will serve us well in our daily lives, regardless of what the skies above us reveal. Thank you.